You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. so good to see you today, church, and uh, as we have our last Sunday of all being in here in one service, and it's probably a, a good thing for numerous reasons, uh, one of the main ones being so that we can invite others and to be have a place where we can uh, have space for other people, but then also just to uh, get back to being where God had us when we moved into this building October a few years ago, and um, We've not really had a normal year yet since being here. And uh, I'm looking forward to having that normal year maybe in heaven. I don't know. So, um, but I, I hope that next week when we go back to our 9:30, 11:15 schedule, as Pastor Robert said, every single one of you maybe scan a QR code today as our mantra here has been for years, serve one, attend one. Serve one, attend one. Doesn't matter which, but serve one and attend one. Give your life to the church on that particular Sunday in that very simple way. And let's let God do something great in us as we kind of start back into the fall. School's back in, college is going back, all kinds of things that God's doing. And we believe that he's also going to do a great thing in and through his church as we reap a harvest that we believe God has promised us as his body. Amen. Actress Dorothy McHugh became famous in 1989. Actually, very famous. Although you may not know her name, she played her most iconic role as Mrs. Fletcher. And although Dorothy McHugh passed away in 1995 at the age of 87, when I speak some of her most famous words that she uttered, every single one of you probably will remember them and remember her. Actress Dorothy McHugh playing the role of Mrs. Fletcher took a tumble in her own bathroom. And then she pressed a little device on her neck and said, help, I've fallen and I can't get up. Now, if there had been memes around at that time, I'm sure that one would have been used ad nauseum. Uh, it's probably still actually used even today. But long before Dorothy ever uttered her iconic words, there was another fall that took place. The first falling happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve disobeyed the one prohibition that God had given in the Garden. And as Adam and Eve ran away and hid from God with shame and fear and a universal cry went up out from all of creation in essence, help, we've fallen and we can't get back up. All of us have to come to grips with the fact that we cannot help ourselves get back up no matter how hard we try. And there is only one, spiritually speaking, who can pull us up from our spiritual distress that we all enter into this world a part of. We're in week two of our series, Alpha and Omega, the story of Scripture. We just sang about the Alpha and Omega. That's who God is, the beginning and the end. And we're taking a look at the biblical order of creation, fall, 
redemption and new creation. And it's not just a theological framework, although it is, but it also is a a parallel or a structure that we still see today in our own lives and in the world around us. We covered creation last Sunday, and it's already been mentioned. We're also recapping it on Wednesday nights right here in this room if you want to be a part of that at 7 o'clock. But we've talked about how creation happened, and God spoke in things that were not all of a sudden became, and he spoke things out of nothing, and out of the nothingness something came. And now because of what God has done and who God is, we have a privilege not just to really write our story, because that's not what it's about. But we have a privilege of our lives being a part of God's story. Genesis 3, 1 through 9 is where we're going to read the account of what is called the fall. Because here's the reality as we move into this portion of what took place biblically and still really today is I want God a part of every aspect in the middle of every aspect of my life story. And so do you particularly when we go through and deal with the fall. So before I read from Genesis chapter 3, if you have your Bible, you can turn there, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. And before I read that, I want to state the obvious. Last week in covering creation, we mentioned that everything that God created was good. And everything that was good was created by God. Now, not so much, right? Now we live in a world where everything isn't really all that good. It doesn't take a whole lot of creativity or time on your phone or watching the news to see how bad things really are. Terminal illnesses, viruses, disease, sickness, hatred, jealousy, murder, greed, perversion, natural disasters like fires as we've been hearing about going on in California or the earthquake that just took place in Haiti. Or uproars in wars like's going on in Afghanistan right now. I just got a, a, a WhatsApp from one of the pastor friends of mine that I'm in school with who lives in Iran. He said, please pray for us. There's all kinds of people coming across the border of Afghanistan, fleeing Afghanistan and coming into Iran. And we're meeting them there because he's right there on that border and we're praying for them. Please pray for us. Does it take long to see the things that are going on in the fallen world around us? And most recently and currently, we are still dealing with in our world, living through a worldwide pandemic that continues to take the lives of countless people all over the world. And watch this. Here's another example, if you will, of the fall. We can't even mourn the fact that people are dying because we're so wrapped up in fighting about what we should do or what we shouldn't do. Should we wear a mask? Should we wear a mask? Should we get a vaccine? Should we get a vaccine? Should I do this or should I do this? Should we love people made in the image of God? That's the question. And how we do that, I know can be different. But the reality is when we get off into, well, what he said, what they said, what the left said, what the right said, what this party said, what this party said, and we forget what God said, we've lost the plot. We're not in this story anymore. We're just in the fall. But what has happened 
to our world and the answer to living through things in this life that we can see and that we're experiencing and that we're going through ourselves personally that are bad, horrific, and destructive. What needs to happen and so that we're able to live through that? First, we must understand that this was never God's intent. As we discussed last week, all that God created originally was perfect and good and our creation mandate was to be fruitful and to multiply, to be have meaningful work that would bring glory to God and we would have been supremely fulfilled if we would have done what God had said and obeyed him but to be perfectly and brutally honest we as humans messed it all up so let's read from Genesis 3 1 through 9 now the serpent was more crafty than any other of the wild animals the Lord God had made he said to the woman did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? The doctrine of the fall can be described this way. Theologian John Frame says, the transgression of the first human beings resulted in humanity's fractured relationship with God, loss of innocence, and entrance into the condition of sin, which ultimately results in death. The Westminster Shorter Westminster Shorter Catechism says it this way, because of the fall, all mankind lost communion with God or under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. Sheesh. I mean, okay. The result of the fall is horrific. And it's ongoing as we live in a fallen world, plagued by the consequences of the fall that I just mentioned, just some of them a moment ago. And from birth, every day thereafter, we're slowly dying an earthly death. Do you feel encouraged yet today? Today, all of us are one step closer than we were yesterday to an eternity with or without God. However, if God had no solution for the fall, this would be cruelty. But there is a solution, and it's becoming a new creation, which we're going to dig into more next week. But today, I want to look at how we are confronted on a consistent daily basis with the fall. A consistent daily battle of being submitted to our creator as Lord. We talked about last week that creation, what supports and tells us that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. Creation says that he created everything, he has authority over all things, and he has the right to do with it whatever 
whatever he desires. He is Lord over all. So every single day, we have the choice to make whether we're going to submit our lives to the lordship of our creator or take matters into our own hands by coming kings and queens of our own hearts and lives, doing what we want to do regardless of God's direction. When this does happen, it plunges us yet again into the vicious cycle of the fall and we can't get back up on our own. Now, pride says that you can. Pride says, I've got this. Pride says, I can do this. Pride says, I don't need God's help. And what has to happen is that we replace our pride with humility and we replace our striving with surrendering to Jesus as Lord. Let's dissect the anatomy of the fall a little bit. As we said last week, everything was good, exactly how God made it. It was paradise. But then paradise was interrupted. The paradise of the Garden of Eden was primarily about being in right relationship with God and in harmony with one another and fulfilling a God-given mandate, having meaningful work unto the glory of God. Perfect harmony with God, relational unity with one another, and meaningful God-honoring work. That's how it was until it was interrupted by the devil. You ever notice the timing of the enemy's interruptions in your life? Like, rarely does the enemy interrupt my life when I'm not doing anything of consequence for the kingdom of God. Rarely does the enemy interrupt my life when I'm not doing anything to advance the kingdom of God. I'm just doing what he wants me to do. So he doesn't interrupt my life. It's after those moments where you have been filled with faith and you have been strengthened and you came to church on Sunday and you were worshiping Jesus and you felt secure and you felt hope and you thought this week is going to be different. It's in those moments that the enemy comes to interrupt. How do you know? Because I'm telling you what happens to me every Monday. That ain't funny. You should be praying for me, not laughing at me. Wow, okay, I see how this is going to go. But the truth of the matter is, I'm like Elijah, and so are you. If you go back and read one of the greatest victories in Elijah's life, right, against the prophets of Baal, and he calls down fire from heaven after he told him, hey, you can douse this altar with gallons of water three different times. And he calls down fire from heaven, destroys all the prophets of Baal, runs faster than a horse-drawn chariot. He does all of these things. Rain comes after it had it for years. And the very next thing we see Elijah doing is hiding from the enemy in a cave. Do you ever feel like that on Monday mornings or Maybe after that time where God did something really amazing in your life and it's like the next day you're wondering if God even exists and you're doubting and you're depressed. Say, how do you know? I'm telling you because I'm there many times, even this week. But the interruption that we see here didn't come in the form of some overt, satanic, demonic attack. That's how we think oftentimes the enemy is going to operate in our life. And because we don't usually see something so overt, right, so grand, like, I don't know, Freddy Krueger showing up in your dreams or something, like, you don't see that, all of a sudden we think we're, there's nothing going on. But here's what happened to Adam and Eve. It came in the form of a question. Just a harmless question. 
a question that planted a seed of doubt. Now understand this, a seed of doubt is deceptive because you don't see it. It gets planted and then it begins to grow in the soil of our hearts undetected by us and then all of a sudden we begin to have questions. It seems harmless to begin with like all temptations but it grows undetected in the soil of our hearts until it's a full grown tree of mistrust which leads to our disobedience against God. In this case it started with a small harmless question. One that had an answer but it was very simply did God really say? Did God really say that? Genesis 3.1, Satan instills doubt in the hearts of humans. Adam was supposed to be living according to every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God, which was to be fruitful and multiply, which was to have dominion over the whole earth. This is what God had said. And then one prohibition, don't do this. This is how Adam is supposed to live, by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God the Father. But instead, he began to doubt the goodness of God the Father. And now he and Eve doubted the word of God the goodness of God and rebelled against the rulership of God. Just started with a simple question. Is that church really doing this? Is she really what she says she is? Is he really like you think he is? It seems harmless. Can you see the parallel in our own lives when we're tempted to question and doubt God's word about God and about people made in the image of God? The question, not the temptation, right? The the question nor the temptation is evil in and of itself. As I said, the question really had an, an answer, a right one. All they had to say was what God had said. But our response to Satan's questioning of God's word has to be the same as Jesus was in Matthew 4 in the wilderness when he came to tempt him three different times. And what was his response every single time? It is written. This is what God's word says. Do you know how much crap we could avoid in life if we started and ended every conversation with what the Bible says, the context in which it was said, and what it means for us today? It is written. Yeah, you can applaud that because I believe this is how we come and overcome the enemy. Because the reality is, make, most, make, make no mistake about this, the enemy can twist Scripture and use Scripture to harm, hurt, and even kill other people. He's been doing that forever. He's been doing that forever, still does it today. Religious and irreligious people still twist Scripture today. It's not new. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were great at twisting the Scripture. Somewhere it started with a lack of faith. They doubted God's word or they misunderstood his word. They didn't see things correctly. They didn't hear the truth of God's words correctly. And they killed Jesus and thought they were doing God a favor. They weren't bad people. They were like the good people, the goodest of good people. 
The people that you would look at and go, I want to be like them. I want to live like them. And hear me, church, we have to follow in the footsteps of Jesus in a fallen world and answer the questions of what did God really say with what God really did say. (laughs) It's that simple and yet so difficult for us because this is our safest defense against doubt and our greatest offense for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Resist the seed of doubt. Resist the mistrust. Resist the lies. Resist the counterfeit. Resist the disobedience. Resist, James says, the devil and he will flee from you. James 4, submit yourselves then to God Obey him, submit yourself to him, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Listen to me, the devil isn't more powerful than God. It's not like they're in a cosmic arm wrestling match and God is straining somehow to win. I hope I can make it through. He has no power over those that belong to Jesus except the power that we give him in this life. The devil can't make you do anything. He has to flee those who are empowered by the Spirit of God. Resist him by using the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to fight him off. What Adam and Eve didn't do, what Jesus did perfectly in the wilderness, it is written. This is what God has said, so this is what I'm going to do. Doubt comes in the guise, if you will, of seemingly good things. We think disobedience and sin comes in the form of legion of angels or demons invading our homes. That's why I said earlier, unless it's something big and drastic and dramatic, it's like it didn't really happen. And yet oftentimes doubt comes through a harmless question. This is not a bad question. It's just a a question that has a good answer. But here's where this starts. I'm hungry. Well, there's fruit that seems good for eating. Well, now that I look at it and think about it and start to desire it and start to take my eyes off of what God said, I'm beginning to see some things that I haven't ever seen before. I'm beginning to believe maybe that God is trying to hope. Like that actually looks better than some of that other fruit that he told us we could eat. This one out of the 10,000 that he told us to eat seems like it's better than all those other 10,000 that we could eat. I guess I might as well just take matters into my own hands. Maybe I'm actually helping God out a little bit, so I'm going to take care of myself for myself because I love myself. This is the same progression that we battle today, church. This is the same thing that we walk through every day of our life. It's what 1 John 2, 16 says in, in high definition, if you will, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Do you notice something here? These are the same three ways that sin entered into the world in Genesis the same three ways that the Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness that he perfectly overcame. And it's oftentimes the same way that sin invades our lives still to this very day. And yet Jesus has given us power over this. Well, what are they? The desire of the flesh. It's a physical craving, if you will. There's, that's where it starts. It's not wrong. It's not bad to be hungry. It just might be bad to go to Waffle House at 2 a.m. 
maybe you've heard that Jim Gaffigan joke before. It's like, it's, it's 2 a.m. There's still time to make one more bad decision. <laughs> you know, pull into Waffle House. I've done it. It's okay. God forgave me. My stomach didn't. But the truth of the matter is, there's a physical craving. That's the desire of flesh. I'm hungry. Flesh refers to selfish outlook on life. And it pursues its own ends. It's independent of God. It's independent of other people. Doesn't care about other people. The flesh only becomes the basis for rebellion against God and for despising the word. But it also indicates that all that is materialistic, all that's egocentric, all that's exploitative, and all that's selfish. The flesh is the root of racism, sexism, love of injustice, despising the poor, neglecting the weak, taking advantage of the helpless, and every unrighteous practice there is. Then you have the desire of the eyes. Well, I'm, I'm hungry. Oh, well, let me look at that. No, 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 God said no. That's all it took. And we always, oh, come on, look, eat, and we do the same thing. We know there's things in our lives that are going to harm us. And it's like, no, there's a desire. And then the desire of my eyes, I can't take my eyes off of it because I've taken my eyes off of Jesus and I put it on this object now that I desire more than Jesus. And it becomes covetousness, which is one of the things that God said that we shouldn't do is to covet something that doesn't belong to us. Whatever that is. And then it ends with the pride of life. I've got this self-aggrandizement, if you will, and we can put it better, self-glorification. I'm supposed to live to bring glory to God. Now I'm going to bring glory to myself. That's the pride of life. And the temptation for Adam and Eve, which is still for us today, is to take control of their own lives. Satan led them to believe they could determine good and evil for themselves, control the consequences of their decisions. That's what we always think. I'll be able to control this. In essence, he led them to believe they could be their own gods. And we would never say that, right? Well, I'm just being my own God right now. But every time that we disobey God and we reject his word, we reject his lordship, we remove the crown from the king of kings and we put it on king me. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overcome or overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Temptation itself is not sin. But yielding to it is. Question. Introspective moment. What are some things you're being tempted to take into your own hands right now? What are some temptations that you're struggling to endure and overcome right now? Or what are some things that you already have taken into your own hands right now? In the story of Adam and Eve, this is the big moment. Just like it is for us when the temptation is at the point of whether or not I'm going to actually do something or flee. Does the temptation become something that I take action on or is it something that I flee? And flee doesn't mean that that we see how far we can go without falling completely like a toddler. You know what I'm talking about? If you're a parent in here or you've a grandparent and uncle, all of us that maybe you're, or maybe you work as a kid focus, uh, help, serve, serving in the nursery. Yeah, that'd be good. QR code, that'd be good right now. So um, I'm just putting in a plug for them. I know they need help. 
But just like Josiah when he was growing up, right, and you say, don't, like when he was a toddler, you know, and it's like he's always moving, that's why he still plays the drums, I'm sure, but he never would sit still, and, and you'd say, now, Josiah, don't go out into the street. Some of y'all heard me tell this story before. Josiah, you don't go out in the street because you're going to get run over by a car, and we don't want to lose you that way. And so this is what Josiah would do, right? He'd, he'd be out there, and he'd walk all the way to the curb. Y'all still watching? Isn't that what we do to God? It's like, no, not this, not this. And, and we kind of go, you going to stop me? You, you, you still watching? And we go as far as he'll let us go. And the reality is that's not fleeing. This is the point where sin begins, when we give in to the temptation and we fall completely. And I think we all know what happened to Adam and Eve. They disobeyed God. They acted on their desire. And this is where paradise interrupted, became paradise lost. A nod to John Milton. This is the point where sin begins. When we take action and we yield to the temptation, we've allowed the progression of the fall to take control of our lives as well. Yet again. Romans 6.16, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness, which is it going to be? We're going to be spiritual toddlers or are we going to flee? James 1, 14, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire, the desire of the flesh, and enticed through the lust of the eyes. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Here again, we see the same three stages of the temptation in the garden. Desire, sin, and death. Desire, Eve saw that the fruit was good for food. Sin, she ate the fruit, gave it to Adam. Death, the end result of sin every single time is something is going to die. Even today, whether it's trust in a relationship, whether it's something physical or emotional or spiritual, there is no time in life where we're able to sin and there isn't something that's dying, even if it's just a separation from God because sin separates. Let's go back to Genesis 3. We'll read verse 7 and 8 again. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God and he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? See, disobedience opened their eyes to things they were never supposed to see or feel. Just like sin does today, right? You know, as a parent, there's a lot of times that I'm trying to protect my kids as they're growing up because the last thing I want them to do is to go through something painful. And so for as long as I can, right, I try to protect them from being hurt or being disappointed or being uh, betrayed or whatever might go on in life that we go through. And at some point, I can no longer protect them from the things that go on in this world. But yet I realize, just as, as God has done for us, right, the disobedience opened their eyes to things they were never supposed to see. I realize that when any of my kids, just like when I disobeyed God, all of a sudden I'm beginning to see and feel things that I never was supposed to see and feel. Yeah. 
I'm like, I'm sorry, son, I'm sorry, daughter. You were never supposed to have to feel this. And all of a sudden, like a rushing torrent, helplessness, grief, shame, and remorse came into Adam and Eve's minds, things they'd never felt before. And sin does the same thing today. Now, instead of walking to God and with God, all of a sudden they're running away from God. And instead of communing with God, they're hiding from God. And this is what sin does. It separates us from God, that perfect harmony, and it separates us from one another, that relational unity. And without God's help, there's nothing we can do to pull ourselves back up. And don't we often do the same thing today? We fail, we fall, we sin, and our first response is to cover it up, lie, run, hide. I can make this go away, self-preservation. The natural human response to sin then and now is to run, hide, and cover up. We've all been there. So they turned and they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. You ever notice how our solutions to things without God's help end up being worse? Like, I don't know what you know. Like, for me, like, thinking, oh, they sewed fig leaves together. In my mind in the past, like, they had a Bernina sewing machine or something. They're like, and they're sewing fig leaves. No, that, that, that didn't happen. I don't know how they sewed them together, but I assure you it wasn't comfortable. It wasn't like a Jordache pair of, of, of fig leaves. It wasn't a designer pair of fig leaves. It didn't actually do the trick. It probably didn't cover things all that well. And they try to cover themselves, making things worse. When we try to be wiser than God, doing what we know is in direct opposition to him, we end up being very foolish. So they try to cover their shame, which is a new thing in their eyes they'd never felt before, but they did it with fig leaves. And fig leaves are insufficient human solutions for covering shame. In their relationship with each other, openness had been replaced by shame, mistrust, instability, superficiality, and a fig leaf wasn't going to fix that. You see, external coverings can never cover internal nakedness. Maybe you've done some things in your life that you've been in direct disobedience to God. Maybe you're feeling some of these same emotions even right now, and I want you to know that that's normal to feel that pain and that separation or maybe even that guilt, all of those things that Adam and Eve felt, the shame, it's normal to feel those things because sin separates. It separates us from God and one another. If you don't feel anything while being disobedient to God, that's when you should be afraid. But if you do and you realize it and you feel it and you desire to make things right, here's what you need to know. No matter how far you've fallen, no matter what you have done, no matter how bad you might think that it is, God in the first sin, and even to this day to the very last one, always responds with mercy and grace. Always. There's never a time that God doesn't respond this way. God did not, and he does not abandon us to our helplessness or our foolishness of covering ourselves our way. Even though Adam and Eve were hiding from him, God took the first step towards the sinners. God took the first steps toward this couple that was in shame, and he went to them, and he called to them, and he said, where are you? 
Not because he didn't know, not because they hid themselves so well or cloaked themselves so well that God couldn't find them anymore. No, God saw them. He saw exactly where they are in the middle of their pain, in the middle of their shame. And rather than embarrass them by calling them out, he said, where are you? He wants them to come out on their own in humility so that he can give them mercy and grace. He's giving them opportunity to come to him themselves and seek his mercy it's just like again playing hide and seek with a child and you're like it's over you don't want to go there and scare them half to death because you know exactly where they are they're not hiding from anybody and so she's like okay I can't find you come on out and they come on out and it's like good job come on that was great you I couldn't find you see God knew exactly where they were but he wasn't gonna go there and browbeat them and scare them. He just said, listen, I'm here, where are you? Do you know where you are? And once you realize where you are, I want you to know that you could come back here where you're supposed to be. God does not enjoy embarrassing us by exposing us, but he wants us to come to him to receive mercy. Adam admitted that he was hiding. He gave the reason for it. I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. This is chapter three, verse 10. And until they disobeyed God, Adam and Eve had been covered with God's righteousness by the righteousness of God. Now righteousness was gone, leaving them too exposed to be able to be in the presence of God's holiness now. So God's response was not to get mad, was not to banish them right off the bat, but was to cover them. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And I promise you, they were way more comfortable than those fig leaves. He clothed them. See, we try to cover up what cannot be covered up. It's uncomfortable when we try to cover things up. It's like a fig leaf trying to cover parts that it cannot cover. It doesn't quite do the job. But God, in his infinite mercy, clothes us with his loving kindness. The gospel tells us that the greatest covering of our sin took place when the blood of Jesus covered us. He covered us with his blood, every sin, so that we can now be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Galatians 3, so in Christ Jesus, you all are children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And it leads me to a question that I've asked before. Do you want to continue to cover yourself or do you want to be clothed with Christ? What we call the great exchange has taken place. And now through those sinful human beings, God trades his righteousness for our sinful garments, if you will, our sinful, helpless forms of covering, and he trades them so that we can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And all of this is from God. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation church what are we supposed to be about we're to be ministers of reconciliation every single one of us sin leads to death unless we're willing to die another way first because of what Jesus did on the cross covering our sin and shame with his blood purchasing our forgiveness we can now die to our old self and our old life of sin and be resurrected to a new life in Christ watch this because Jesus 
fell to the ground in death, we can now get back up into a new life in Christ. He's the one that can fall, not in sin, but in perfect crucifixion and death and get back up. John 12 says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. In Christ, his death led to a resurrection. In Christ, the planting of that seed led to a harvest of souls that you and I are now testimony of. In that, death led to a resurrection. Now, in Christ, death, dying to ourselves, always leads to a resurrection. And Jesus is always the one who will help you get back up. Will he not do it? His mercies are new every morning. And as you daily take up your cross, die to yourself, surrender to being crucified with Christ and raised to a new heart, a new mind, a new life in Christ, a life where my guilt has been forgiven by grace and I'm empowered to love in such a way that my shame is removed and I live a life dying to myself and following Christ. This is a resurrected life. And although Adam and Eve took their eyes off of Jesus and put their eyes on their desire, we're supposed to do what Hebrews does, fixing my eyes on Jesus. The author and the perfecter of my faith who for the joy set before him laid down his life scorning the shame of the cross sit down at the right hand of the throne of God and now intercedes on our behalf that we'll keep our eyes focused on him <laughs> lastly today don't run from God don't hide from God Run into him. Let him clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. No one has fallen too far that he can't reach down and pick you back up if he'll just cry for help. He'll give you a brand new life. Everybody comes to him the same way. Fallen, naked, ashamed, afraid. And Jesus picks us up, clothes us in his righteousness, and casts out every fear with his perfect, unconditional, amazing love. And he can do that for every single one of us. For many of you, you've experienced that. Others of you, maybe it's today. Now, I'll close with this because maybe you have that great existential question of why would God allow the fall in the first place? Well, uh, we'll answer that on Wednesday. Now, you could talk about it. But let's consider this. If God's primary purpose in creation and redemption is to display his glory, what does that tell us about why he allowed the fall? Both logically and chronologically, the fall comes between creation, last week's subject, and redemption, next week's subject. Without a creation, there could be no fallen creation. And without a fallen creation, there could be no redeemed creation. So, it's reasonable to infer that God's primary purpose in allowing the fall was to showcase his glory both in the original creation and also in his powerful and merciful restoration of that creation from its rebellion and corruption even to this day. A world with no fall and no salvation is altogether less God-glorifying than a world with a tragic fall, but a marvelous salvation. 
God has ordained a world which we can know him, yes, as creator, and that is wonderful. But now we can also intimately know him as redeemer. To know fellowship with God as a creature made in his image is a great blessing, but to know God as a redeemed sinner restored in the image of his son is immeasurably greater. And once we grasp how this aspect of who God is and who we are is impossible apart from the fall, we can begin to appreciate the primary reason our wise and sovereign and gracious and loving creator allowed it so that you could be in a relationship with your gracious redeemer. Let's pray. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.